Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good evening, ladies and germs. Welcome to Agitators Anonymous, the Alan Averill podcast. This is the third episode. How are we all doing? Even at this stage, a week between podcasts feels about as long as it takes for Primordial to make one album to the next. The days are melding into each other. They seem somewhat seamless without change. Often I find myself not knowing which day of the week it is. And it's curious how already we fall into a routine. It's also been curious to me how obedient people are, how easily they've taken the medicine, how quickly they've adapted to quarantining, because the reality is we're quarantining the healthy, which is something that doesn't have incredible historical precedent to quarantine those who are not sick. Um, And these instincts are antithetical to how we behave, how we behave as human monkeys in this world. They are contrary to our innate instincts. Um, During past adversities, people could congregate, they could gather, they could gather in the town square to regale each other with the day's events. They could hold communal joy over a sporting event. They could take to the streets to oust one tyrannical leader or to welcome in a venerated poet as another. They could gather. They could congregate. But now we're being told to isolate. This is 
as I said, antithetical to our innate instincts. All you have to do is look back, for example, over many, many interviews with people who survived, for example, the Blitz, and you can hear how they have often said that this was one of the times where they felt felt not only most alive, but that community mattered more as people pulled together in the face of adversity. This particular adversity we're being told to pull apart, quite where we begin to reconstruct that communality once this all ends, I am not sure how that happens, but it must. We also must acknowledge how different this experience is for various people, person to person. For me, isolating on my own, the situation is very different to somebody who is maybe doing that with a partner. Perhaps it's a partner they just met that they've decided they cannot spend another moment with but are unable to part. Perhaps it is a a new young family who've just bought a house to whom this seems like the greatest extended summer they've ever had and their kids will look back fondly on it. Or perhaps, like the many people I see on the streets, they are coping with mental illness and have now decided to take that out on the sidewalk. Sidewalk. I'm not American. But they are out there pounding the streets every day. I see them wandering, fragmenting, unraveling, beginning to display all the signs of mental illness that only isolation could amplify. Homeless people, and no doubt many people who also have such mental illnesses, are creating their own tent cities in their foyers of gigantic multinational banking corporations which are sitting empty. Learn to code, right? A part of me thinks about this movie, Goodbye Lenin, um, which was quite the popular thing about a decade ago about a woman who goes into a coma um, in former East German communist Berlin and wakes up after the fall of the Berlin Wall but has been so in love with her former communist state that her son, uh, while tending to her recovery, is unable to tell her that the wall has fallen and so tries to furnish her with um, reruns of TV shows and act as if nothing has happened. And when I wonder about the kind of society that comes out after this, I can already see when neighbours are beginning to tell on each other if they've been broken the curfew. The signs are there that isolation and quarantining alone or without recourse to social activity is going to um, manifest itself in some very dark reproaches. It's going to amplify some of the most negative traits of humanity. Somehow in my head, I have this feeling that out of this, we might return to some sort of Stasi-like East German 1970s society where laughter and creativity, humor and art must somehow exist underground if they are to exist at all, where neighbors tell on neighbors and we have an increased surveillance society and we have to navigate our way through all of those things. It's one of the things that fascinates me Will we wake up in some form of 70s East Germany, Stasi state? Of course, there's many, there's maybe too many film noirs fogging my glasses and 
too many nights tipping dirty ice into my cheap whiskey, laboring over well-thumbed paperbacks that have been inflaming my imagination. Today, however, I did read an article shared among many music industry people, many peeps, as they are called, that we may be looking at next autumn before gigs or gatherings of any kind may be allowed. Um, festivals will literally will there will be no festivals this summer. I think we can pretty much agree unilaterally on that. Merkel has just pulled the plug on any big gatherings this summer in Germany, and I would expect the rest of Europe to follow suit. And even if they didn't, if foreign bands are going to play in those countries, how would they be allowed to travel to land? Um, certainly, the entertainment industry, which let's call it for what it is, or let's call it that for now, is in serious trouble. I mean, might we have gone to our last festival as we knew it? I mean, not to be the harbinger of doom, but even the most optimistic of agents and bands, they know that summer deep down was unlikely to happen. Yet they are rebooking shows for after this summer, but based on whose authority? I mean, what if we can become reinfected. I did talk about this within the last podcast about the idea of a biometric diagnostic passport. I mean, you already have the health app on your phone. It's hardly a big leap of faith to imagine that that may also say whether you have been vaccinated or not. I found the other day while trying to find something to do and clean out shelves of man stuff. Men just accumulate shelves of random things, torches and all sorts of stuff. I found my malaria book for when I visited Southeast Asia a few years ago. Why not that as an electronic alternative? But what that does say is that if you have not had the vaccine, which let's not forget needs to be upscaled to hundreds of millions of people, then will you be allowed to travel while big pharma tear strips off each other in an effort to corner the market and create said vaccine? Will you be able to travel freely next summer without that vaccine? Can you see a band arriving from a hot spot like, like New York and landing in Zurich or Helsinki with ease if they cannot prove that they have immunity? And the EU has proven itself to be a disunited shell of an idea. Are we looking at the potentiality of civil unrest to follow on from tens of millions of the newly employed all across the EU zone? Because it's for sure... They certainly hung Italy out to dry. And if Italy is the fourth biggest economy in the EU leaves a virus post-Brexit idea, then where does that leave the EU? This is where they say, this is, as they say, where the wheels meet the tarmac, if I've got the right analogy. If we have a biometric diagnostic passport, even with all of your details stored within your phone, then at what price all your personal data, which is attached to that, when you cross every border? I mean, we already have retina scans. So if you need the vaccine to travel and gather, and let's step outside of our rubric, which is the music industry, what if that m festival that you were going to go and see was actually a political demonstration? There must, you must go through a biometric screening process. You must pass through, much as you do when you get off the metro or the tube, you must pass through barriers to enter the confines of the city centre in order to meet to demonstrate and you were unable to do that without vaccination. Or who knows, perhaps if all of these things are 
electronically cross-referenced even this conversation. Everything I've ever written on the internet will be scanned by some bot connected to this biometric diagnostic. And I might get stopped on the border of Germany and it might say, Mr. Averill, something you said in 2009 contravenes our new definition of hate speech. You are no longer allowed to enter into Germany. What then? Now maybe I'm pushing the boat too far along the waters of conspiracy theory. But no one can deny we are living in fertile times for all of those thoughts to grow very, very quickly. I try not to add too much grist to the mill when it comes to these ideas and realize that the truth will always be that gray area between the sexy black and white appraisal of every situation, that the truth will always be all of the points of light in between. It will always be rational and irrational actors, bad and good faith agents pushing in all different directions. But no one can deny that this is indeed fertile ground. And I keep hearing people talk about universal basic income. I mean, realistically, if these tens of millions of people that are unemployed are taking money from the state because they need this stimulus, then is that not a form of temporary universal basic income? Which I agree with on some level. Those tens of millions of people are going to need some way of feeding their kids or we will have carnage. But could that money be stopped for non-compliance to these new parameters, these new diagnostic parameters? Now, of course, I often tell myself and others that, as I said before, they are not really, in my opinion, uh, they. But the old adage that you must never attribute to malice what you can do to incompetence or stupidity is something I still subscribe fundamentally to. But I will admit that it seems that I have less and less space to maneuver when it comes to considering these things. I mean, we also have to consider that most politicians are not Machiavellian state builders. Some are. But most are fixated on the short term and re-election. Yet the ground is fertile, I can see that. But not every penalty I take goes in the top bins, you know. But every now and again, I get one. Anyone would. The law of averages states so. And Epstein, he had an island, right? So a few things to answer that people have been asking me. Um, in the last few weeks since I started this, or what feels like the last three years since the first podcast. Um, and the first is that, is that Winston Churchill in the intro? No, it's Alistair Crowley. Um, it's the great beast himself. From the north, from the south, the east. Uh, I grant you they do sound very similar, but there was very old... Um, tube recordings or whatever they call them, cylinder recordings of Alistair Crowley that you can find on the internet from the 1920s. Um, and my cousin with whom I do the April Man Project whipped me up this rather tasty intro that you can hear before. So that's actually Alistair Crowley, um, not Winston Churchill. Uh, I might devote a little story sometime to old Alistair. He's a very interesting and curious character and his shadow hangs long over heavy metal, especially black metal. A lot of bands have unwittingly adopted his thalamic imagery. 
Um, some people have asked me, where is my song on the Me and That Man album? That's a good point. Um, it's apparently on a seven inch along with uh, a song by Addy from Solstafir. Hopefully it has a digital imprint soon enough that I can share with some people because it turned out great. Thirdly, people are asking me, do we have plans for Primordial's 30th next year? Uh, well, this is, again, comes back to what we talked about in relation to gigs. It is going to be difficult to keep pushing dates down the line when we have no authority on whether we will be able to play a tour, for example, as we had planned of obscure and odd songs if we have no authority to do so. Yeah, 30th birthday. I may get around to considering that. Just to put that into perspective, we are not ancient. We are not ancient. I joined Promotial a week after my 16th birthday. So, technically, I think I'm still not middle-aged. Although I'm sure that does not sound so to some of you. Youth is wasted on the young, my friends. So I guess we have to wait and see how things pan out. I have made a Spotify playlist maybe to go with this podcast. It's called Off the Beaten Tracks. It's just a random 12 or 13 song compilation of what somebody might say are B-sides of Primordial, but it also has some very cool songs that I think maybe didn't get the attention they deserved on the album, you know. Lastly, I did get the impression from quite a few people they were wondering, where's the politics? Where's the rants? Where is the 3 a.m., sorry, 4 a.m. whiskey-soaked wisdom? Where's the bloody knuckle politic? Where's my ranting and raving? Where's my inner Alex Jones? Where's the prevaricating? Well, I mean, I take that on board. Um, I maybe thought the last podcast was a little short, um, but I didn't create this to soapbox, proselytize and preach. This wasn't my intention to just make the podcast a vehicle for my politics. I mean, that would get very boring very quick, right? So have no worry. In time, I might throw in the odd element of politics into this whole thing. Um, I think one thing is clear, and that is that what's happening in the world right now puts the last, let's say, 25 years of relative calm and stability in the West into sharp perspective. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the onset and growth of, let's call it, a new emergent middle class from the early 90s, with the exception of the Balkans, the West has lived and prospered and grown. And many of the politics that manifest themselves today in society. These are the politics of a safe and indulged, a bloated, placated society that's become so bored with itself and so willfully suicidal in its understanding of its own history that it's quite willing to not only make the noose but kick the chair out from under itself. But I think that from both sides of the political divide, what's going to happen is that this virus is the grand leveler. Make no mistake about that. This is this right now. It may not seem so because everyone has too much time in front of the screen and too many time to fire out even more tweets and try and make 
what is a global pandemic into a point scoring exercise. We're going to go back to concerns, real human concerns, which are going to be healthcare, rent, jobs. I really don't think that the kind of politics we've witnessed over the last couple of years that have praised the anti-scientific are going to get much oxygen anymore. People who have let their political ideals cease to be objects of reason but articles of faith are going to have a very hard time convincing people who can't put food on the tables for their children of their articles of faith. I think this is going to be a very big, stark wake-up call for many, many people. See what I did there? Sort of yanked my own yanked my own chain, so to say. As I said, speed metal and onanism. Um, I'm like I said, I try and keep the podcast clear of my political meanderings because that's not really what it's supposed to be about. But I can't help but observe some of the things that are happening in society, you know. Anyway, everyone always sees themselves as Robespierre, don't they? Everyone always sees themselves as the righteous peasants marching up to the gates of Versailles. But yet in reality, very often, they are far more like the coddled aristocracy hiding behind the gates. They're far more like the pampered, coiffured bourbons that are about to uh, meet their hasty end at the guillotine. So... This podcast was recorded on two separate occasions. And what you just heard yesterday, I can tell was done with rather a lack of energy. It was a little bit low energy. And I thought about what sort of story should I finish off the second half of the podcast with, because that's going to be the main way I'm going to approach these things now is to have the second half as maybe some ridiculous story, um, maybe guests eventually, you know, somebody else, as I said, who may have done equally as juvenile and stupid things. So I thought long and hard about quite what to make this story about. And I realized because of maybe the somber or maudlin or um, vaguely pathetic uh, tone of the first half. Maybe I should inject some uh, idiocy into proceedings. Some youthful exuberance, some uh, misplaced enthusiasm for uh, things that maybe I shouldn't have been quite so enthusiastic about. So let's call these stories Adventures with Absinthe. Um, probably uh, two of the most utterly ridiculous uh, I, I would say the most animalistic, most out of my mind I've ever been in my entire life. So let's call this section uh, uh, Alan Averill's Fun Adventures with Absinthe. So, well, the first part of the story is really not only about absinthe, but just about my our general attitude to things, the sort of feckless Irish attitude towards indulgence and the asher look at, go on. How bad, how bad could it be? Way of looking at the at things, you know. So first things first, let's start at the beginning of this stupid tale, which is um, 
Primordial's first tour, tours of Europe were starting around 97, 98, mini tours, Tierfing, Mayhem, that kind of thing. Um, a full tour with Immortal in 2000 and a few others. But I think 2002, we did a, I think about a 30-day tour with Rotting Christ and Enthroned. Um, we were opening. So it's kind of curious when you're the opening band because in a way you can get up to far more divilment and you're in, you can get up to far more hijinks and get into trouble. You've only necessarily got 40, 45 minutes to open with and then you've got the rest of the time to stand around, try and look cool at the merch stand, um, try and chat to whoever you're interested in. If you are, if you can hold a sentence together, maybe you can try and avoid the loadout. Maybe you're, you know, you've got the time to indulge in a few more drinks maybe than the headline band. You've got a different set of responsibilities, a different set of um, expectations. And certainly my understanding of what fans of the band, my understanding of their expectations maybe lacked a little when it comes to um, understanding. Because, you know, uh, we're talking nearly 20 years ago. So... You know, 20 years younger, yeah, young, uh, exuberant, um, you know, Nemtianga on the loose across Europe. Um, so what do you do on your, what do you do on your first day of tour? Well, you buy about 50 ecstasy, I think is what you do. I think that's the standard procedure that's in the, that's in the handy book, right? Yeah, I think so. So when... An old friend of mine uh, says, "Ah, oh, you know, uh, if you buy 50, you can get them for, I don't know what, must be 100, 120 euro. I only think I had 200 euro for the whole tour, but it seemed fairly reasonable to spend more than half of that amount on drugs right off the bat. Now, there will be references to drugs here and there in these podcasts, because um, unfortunately for anybody who's against them, uh, some of my most hilariously stupid um, stories involve them. Uh, they involve alcohol as well. They sometimes involve sex, but more often than not, they're more likely to involve uh, vomit, which this one does. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, I shan't kiss and tell. Um, but yeah, this is what you did. This is this 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 made perfect sense to me. Ah, okay, that's a good idea. I think I'll just buy. 50 ecstasy on the first day so on that tour we had the um incredible australian comedian steve hughes playing the drums for us simon wasn't able to um and he'd been living in my house uh in dublin for about a year we'd met him in the pub uh he was up to do a comedy show in dublin um we got talking he said oh do you know the band slaughter lord oh sorry you know the band slaughter lord um, of course we did. Who doesn't? Classic split seven inch with Morbid Angel. Die by power, etc. And a week later, he was living on our couch and he lived there for about a year. So when I when Simon couldn't do the tour, um, he's the person that I thought of. And he lied to me, of course, and told me he had been rehearsing the songs on 
a drum kit he had at home, which was actually the back of chairs. But, you know, he's a force of nature, so he was able to get pulled through it valiantly and also partake in uh, the uh, nightly ritual of just taking ecstasy every single night, uh, which just seemed to be the standard thing to do. Me and Steve and a member of Enthroned decided that this would be the just... Yeah, I mean, why not? Why wouldn't you? You're young. Your body can rebound every morning. So why not just drink whiskey and take ecstasy every single night for 30 days in a row? I mean, it stands to reason, right? If that isn't in the notebook of rock and roll, then um, I must have missed the page. Either that or it's in the journal of stupidity. But anyway, uh, so this is what we did. Um, the You have to... I think really understand that maybe only really when the band made to the Gathering Wilderness and to the Nameless Dead did I, decide, did I decide to really take a long look inside and go, uh, maybe I should concentrate on singing all the words and try and get them in tune, or at least 75% of the words. Um, let's leave always a little amount to poetic license. I decided really then in 2006, 7, 8, maybe to try and be a bit more professional. But before that, it was a mixed bag of um, gigs where I might decide to drink a whole bottle of whiskey, kick over amps, pull over drums, smash glass, jump into the crowd, hit people. Those are not the norm, but there are occasions of that. I mean, and I still meet people who come up to me and go, ah, you know, Alan, I saw you in 2002 and it was the best promoter show ever. And I go, ah, Okay, what what did I do? Yeah, you were so really drunk, could not sing properly, and uh, you have kicked uh, my friend in the, in the in the face, and fallen between the stage and the barrier. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. Thanks for reminding me that. Did I at least sing in tune? Ah, sometimes you know. Anyway, so we're about two weeks into this tour. Um, you know, we're doing all right, holding our own. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, back then, you know, you're young, your body can take the the punishment that you put it through, which at the time was just drinking a lot of whiskey. Um, however, I, uh, in Vienna, I very much met my match. So we play in Vienna. Oh, this is pretty good gig. After party, we go to some metal bar. And in my infinite wisdom, I decide, standing at the bar, thinking to myself, yeah, this is this is going pretty good. I'm holding it together. I'm just about, must be just about in the top 20 coolest people in the bar, maybe. Mm -hmm. New rock boots, magician's beard, as I told you about last week. Um, and I see a bottle of absinthe on the top shelf. And I say, ah, oh, that's what I want. That's what I want. The romantic associations of absinthe have long been sung about, written about. But I never drunk it, so here we go. Yeah, what could make me seem cooler to whoever I was talking about than to get launched into uh, absinthe and Red Bull? Perfect. The barman says... Now, you know, you're only supposed to have two shots of this, but seeing as you have played the gig, uh, it's okay for you, you know, band guy, band guy. 
Yeah. So, thank you, Mr. Barman of whatever particular bar that was in Vienna. Long there has the name escaped me. Um, so, yeah, let's just launch into as many shots of absinthe and Red Bull as possible. The night didn't end well. Um, needless to say, I lost my fucking mind. I have a blackout of hours and hours. And if ever you've heard a story about somebody who went out on the booze and jumped off a bridge or... I don't know. That's a bit morbid. Um, or something dramatic has befallen them and you've heard they drunk absinthe, then that is the reason why. Uh, it's just absolutely carves open the top of your head, scoops your brain out and flings it on the ground. So, and unfortunately for me, there is video evidence of this. Back then, some someone had brought a camcorder on the tour and somewhere or other is footage of me screaming and shouting and being held in, down in the corner by two or three people, uh, getting punches in the face, getting kicked in the head. Um, I'd already broken the stereo on the bus, run into the stereo, disliking what was being played, smashed a stick into the stereo. Uh, pff, who knows? Pulled all the pulled all the curtains down, thrown all sorts of stuff around the, the room, and they were holding me down. I mean, whatever, whatever black eyes I got out of that evening, I totally deserved it. There's photos, photo evidence as well. Standing in the snow at minus eight, top off, trying to climb a tree. Uh, whole back, whole back just scarred um, from whoever else was nearly as drunk as I was whipping me with bits of wood. Um, just this skinny, pale Irishman running amok in minus 10, minus 8, whatever it was, temperature in Vienna in winter. Locked out of the bus, out of his mind, getting slaps. Getting slaps. And, uh, ensue about a five or six hour blackout of literally having to be restrained uh, not able to speak just making noises for over and over and over again and I never forget the next day waking up in between the bunks just covered in vomit with no top on um Probably wearing leather trousers, I imagine, in Urox. Probably, probably. Covered in vomit. Just didn't even make the bed. Made beside the bed, but didn't even make the bed. Coming down the stairs, and George, the old keyboard player of Rod in Christ, was sitting there. He was a very uh, kind of zen-like, intimidating kind of guy. Always super calm. Always had the, the knew the right thing to say. And he looked at me and he says... And I tried to apologize to him, and he goes, Alan, you are a man, not a boy. You must behave like a man. And until you realize that you're a man, I will not forgive you. It was a bit more, a bit less Greek and a bit more Italian there. But yeah, you get the message, Alan, you know. So fully shamed, fully shamed, stinking of vomit, no doubt, back of welts and bits of blood and... You know, still wearing the makeup from the stage the day before. Um, still with a pocket full of ecstasy, I may add. I managed to keep hold of that and not lose that, which was cunningly hidden in a packet of Fisherman's Friends. That was our complicated 
uh, arrangement at the time for uh, going through border posts or just having it in my pocket. Um, so every now and again, you'd go to take some, uh, maybe you wanted a fisherman's friend and you got an ecstasy and said, what a fun afternoon that may be. So it took me about a full day or two to work my charming magic on Rotting Christ uh, and get them to um, accept my groveling apology, which they were not obliged to take because as the opening band, you're not supposed to really run amok like I did. Now, they, and of course, I know Sarkis since 91, so there was friendship before that. But if that was, if I was them and they didn't know me, <laughs> I might have to consider uh, withdrawing privileges for the remainder of the tour if it even went ahead for said band or said idiot however um somewhere or other on a old dusty shelf is a collection of camcorder tapes which i'm threatening to digitize so if anybody would like to go to my patreon which is slash alan averill with two a's who knows, maybe they'll show up there. No, that's a lie. It was nicely shoehorned in, though, wasn't it? Hmm? So this was the first learning curve, which is, you know, there you are in your leather pants and your new rock boots and eyeliner magician's beard. Um, and no doubt some sort of flouncy pirate shirt and a bullet belt. It doesn't matter who you are. Absinthe is going to cut you down. The ecstasy was just a side dish. It was just a... You know, it was just a salad, a quinoa salad on the side of the main course. And that main course being absinthe. Um, and it just takes your brain out. Now, admittedly, you're not supposed to probably drink it with four cans of Red Bull. But, you know, you live and learn. Well, I mean, you live and learn until you do the same thing again. So, as an extra little bonus vomit, um, let's unveil part two of that story uh my very dear friend duncan patterson who used to be an anathema um played on the first couple of anathema albums on the bass um actually i might tell the story of our first little tour with them actually in ireland some other time um but yeah duncan um true stand-up gentleman that he is uh in the in those days in the uh, mid let's say to late 90s, very often Anathema used to end up in our old uh, house hanging out for recording some solo records. Um, I think Danny was doing a Nick Drake record in Dublin for a while, which is worth checking out if you can find it. Blah, blah. Anyway, yeah, I mean, you want to hear the vomit, right? So me and Duncan are, it's Tuesday night. We're uh, the only two valiant superheroes um legends of our lifetimes um bad magicians who are out on dublin out in dublin on a tuesday night just you know quietly running amok talking about football and meat pies all right mates how's it going see it's a musical ear that can do so many accents anyway so we have been out drinking most of the evening um, and then we show up in some awful, uh, we go to like a nightclub, uh, in Dublin, uh, which is mainly just full of like, sort of, I suppose, fake tan sort of, um, 
don't even know what you what you could call it, but I do remember that uh, me and Duncan asked for and then danced to Huey Lewis and the news, The Power of Love, rather too exuberantly, and I'm pretty sure got ejected from said nightclub. I think it was called Blooms or something. Anyway, we, we ended up in the basement of um, some dingy rock bar to be recognised by an excitable Eastern European barman who decided that, well, it is the guy from Primordial and the guy from Anathema. So that's actually, that's Finnish accent, isn't it? Alan, you know. So and it's, it, it, let's go to, he must be Polish guy. So he talk a bit like this, okay. Or Russian guy. He says, oh, for Anathema Primordial guys, okay, free shots on me. Because there was nobody in the bar and our our genius behind the bar decided it was going to be shots of absinthe. So, in my defense, I would say I didn't know. However, cut to four hours later. No idea what happened to the those four hours. Coming to in a taxi on our way home, both asleep, both get kicked out because um, we can't find the, you know, can't give the taxi driver directions to where we're going. Blackout. Again, for a couple more hours. Wake up on the floor in my room. It's about noon. It's freezing cold. All the windows are open. All the curtains have been pulled off. Blowing a gale through my room. It looks like... um, It looks like... It looks like a Tasmanian devil has been through my room. Everything is just all over the place. CDs everywhere. Just... A complete mess. Come downstairs into the kitchen. All the windows are open. Broken crockery, broken glass all over the floor. Bits of chairs, bits of just like a complete and utter whirlwind of devastation has gone through the kitchen. Into the front room. Our kid Duncan is asleep on the couch with all the windows open, blowing a gale. Just on the couch, just sitting there. That's it. Complete blackout, complete devastation. I have a feeling the absinthe is the is the conduit between those two things. So I see a lot of missed calls from my housemate, uh, who is who at the time was Colin, who's now in Verkulek. Um Many, many missed calls, lots of angry texts. I don't remember a single thing, but it would seem that I spent most of the evening uh, lying on my back outside his room in my pants, pretending to be a newborn, just ah, screaming at the top of my head over and over and over and over again for hours. Did I ever drink absinthe again? No. I watched somebody do the spoon thing with the uh, melting ice and it looked pretty beautiful. But nah, even... I kind of learned my lesson-ish. I mean, I did many other stupid things over the years that followed, of course. I mean, this stands to reason, right? Or else I'd have no stories to tell. See, I can look back and say, ah, there's a reason why I behaved in such a manner. And that was purely for your listening pleasure. However, being Irish, the first time wasn't enough. The second time, okay, okay. If there are any absinthe companies out there who'd like to sponsor me, um, feel free. Feel free to write in.
Um, that, my friends, I think is enough vomit and enough alcohol, 4 a.m. soaked wisdom um, to end this podcast with. But we will be back next week. Remember, it's primordial underscore nemthianga if you want to follow me on Instagram. It is, as I said, patreon.com slash Alan Aver with two A's, capital A's. Um, and until then, try and stay safe and stay sane out there. If you have a bottle of absinthe on the shelf that you bought on holidays in the Czech Republic, I think now is the perfect time. If you're in quarantine with somebody you dislike and you want to end that relationship, I think now is the time you should get stuck into it. Good night. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.